Welcome to One Million Experiments, a podcast showcasing and exploring how we define and create safety in a world without police and prisons. I'm Kiss. I'm Damon, and we are grateful to be here with you for episode 10. And as always, we have our partner in decriminalization uh-huh. here with us. Even the guy was in the building. Eva, what's up? Yeah. Hey, y'all. Good to be here. Nice to oh. see you. That was so bashful and, and sweet. That's when we've been doing this a season. We got nothing left to prove. Ten episodes in. Happy to have you back with us. Um, on this final episode of season one, who are we talking to today, Eva? We are so lucky to finish up this first season of One Million Experiments with Aislinn Pulley and Mark Clements from the Chicago Torture Justice Center. Aislinn is the co-executive director there, and Mark is a community organizer and survivor. On May 16, 2015, the country's first reparations ordinance for survivors of police torture was passed unanimously by the Chicago City Council. The Chicago Torture Justice Center was born out of that fight. Survivors and their families fought for decades for access to the trauma-informed resources and politicized healing support that the center now offers. Today, with hundreds of survivors still incarcerated and the persistence of racialized police violence, that fight continues. So it really means a lot to close out the season with CTJC. You'll hear it, but this is this is definitely a, a home team occasion for us and for me. Um, over the past couple of years, I've I've been working with CTJC, and so not only being connected or a part of the movement that brought about reparations and celebrated and supported the opening of the center, actually understanding and seeing the day-to-day operations as well as the community and how survivors support each other and advocate and are still leading this fight. Because there's a, a, a complicated thing that happens when we get wins is that for some people looking from the outside, it can seem as if victory means we can stop or that we can rest or that there is not much more work to be done. Um, And with this history and with this community and with this resilience, it is always at the forefront that we still have so much to do and so far to go in terms of truly working towards repairing the harm of carceral violence in our communities. The truth is that this is such a model for organizing around the country and that these organizers themselves are so available. I myself have talked to Aislinn about a million different questions having to do with their work. Mark is always out and about and repping <laughs> CJJC and, and all the work that he's doing. So I invite you to this conversation and we invite you to continue it because the organizing work that got this center off the ground and what they're doing now is really a beacon for everyone that's doing abolition. There are a couple things that are referred to in the episode that we wanted to clarify before we hop in, just so you have all the context, dear listener. Dane, what do we what do we got to let them know? Yeah, there was some important movement history that was discussed, and because it was a home team, I think we we just spoke about it as if it was assumed for folks to know. But for folks outside of Chicago or people who may not have been as present in 2014, we reference and we continue to honor Dominique Franklin, who was killed by the Chicago Police Department in May in 2014, and a lot of his loved ones and friends. Um, in the pain of the loss, came together and began organizing on behalf of his legacy and against the institution that killed him. And what was birthed out of that was the work of We Charge Genocide, which was not only significant in fighting for the legacy of Dominique Franklin or Damo, as he was belovedly known as. Um, It also really was one of the 
I'll say the preeminent seeding ground of abolitionist movement in Chicago. Um, not only did we charge, come together to bring a cohort of young people to go to the United Nations to charge the Chicago Police Department with genocidal violence, it also birthed the Chicago Torture Reparations Project, which birthed the Chicago Torture Justice Center as well as Chicago Torture Justice Memorial Project. And in addition, is pretty much how organizations such as the Let Us Breathe Collective, BYP 100, Asada's Daughters, BLM Chicago actually really got strengthened and activated in their abolitionist lens. And so it gets referenced because it's so important to us and such canon that we kind of just say it without going in depth with it because there's so much to talk about in this episode, but we feel like it's important for folks to have that context and understand um, where this works comes from. And obviously we got to shout out the, the super big homie, Miriam Cabo, who was instrumental in bringing We Charge Genocide together and helping to lead and teach so many people. So if you want to learn more about that, you can go to the Ergo feed. And within our first hundred episodes, they get talked about in great detail. So go check out some history and let's get to this episode. I love that you told them, if you want to learn more, listen to 100 hours of audio that we <laughs> yeah, recorded go, between go, 2015 go and 16. <laughs> <laughs> you can also go to chicagotorturejustice.org to learn more about the work that the center is doing today. We're excited for y'all to hear what we have. It's important for us to learn and bear witness to these horrific histories, but we do want to give a content warning that there is some direct description of torture and extreme bodily harm in the midst of the conversation and we would like folks to go in that with some grounding all right y'all let's head into the lab for the last time on season one with aislin and mark of the chicago torture justice center all right everybody we're hopping in the lab but this feels like we're coming home in the truest sense we are now going to address document converse with my favorite <laughs> experiment a space that i don't only appreciate on an ideological level but like in my personal life and my own work i'm so deeply inspired and moved and encouraged and grounded by the chicago torture justice center and the legacy that it comes from and the possibilities that it's making in the world so we got some folks here Happen in the lab with us that I love even more than I love the work. Um, these are two of the most phenomenal, brilliant organizers, movement people, and some of the most dedicated spirits and souls with us. We have the amazing Mark Clemens and the phenomenal Aislinn Pulley from the Chicago Torture Justice Center. <laughs> and we're going to start the conversation with a two-part question for both of y'all, as we always do, and it's centered around time. So in this time, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world, Mark and Aislinn? Well, how the world is treating me, uh, everything is great. And how am I treating the world? With dignity and respect and love. Aislinn? How is the world treating me? It's treating me with its normal ambivalence. <laughs> um, but I'm still marveling at like the majesticness of it and like in awe of the fact that we exist in this multiverse. So that's kind of how I'm treating it. <laughs> the opposite of ambivalence. Yeah, you yeah, it all. Like, it's giving you ambivalence. <laughs> like, no, if you don't want to be amazed by me, I'm amazed by you. <laughs> Take that. All right. So we, we're in the lab and we, we want to ground the listeners in 
this is a long 40, 50 year tradition of this work. Um, and both of y'all obviously come to it from different experiences and different positions. But when we talk about survivor-led reparations and we talk about torture justice, what was each of y'all's hypothesis entering into that work? So what was your imagination of what is possible? Uh, what, what were the hopes, what were the ideals aiming for when started in this, this effort, this fight, this, this lineage of reparations? I tell you my hypothesis. <gasps> my imagination is exceeding due to the fact that some of the things that we have accomplished I never could see it being accomplished, but we did accomplish it. And I think that the mothers of people that have had to suffer behind the prison walls, I think they're very happy right now with the direction of the Chicago Torture Justice Center, considering the struggle that it took to achieve it with men and women being first tortured around 1972 and that extending until John Burge had been fired and well after Burge had been fired within the Chicago Police Department, we had a system that basically ignored the fact that black and brown people were being taken down to police stations and literally tortured until they confessed to crimes and which many of them did not commit. And I believe that even if individuals are deemed to be guilty of offenses based upon them being taken down to police stations, I believe uh, solely that charges ought to be dismissed against those individuals Police had no right to do this. They had no right to do it to me in 1981. I wish the system would have listened back in 1981 when there were only 23 known torture survivors. But we know that in the 80s and 90s, torture really took off. Looking at the reparations, this was a achievement and which I believe that all people that have had to battle for any fairness within the criminal justice system can really say that, well, hey, guess what? We achieved something and we achieved it for the people. Mm, that's so powerful. So, Aislinn, I'm going to throw the same question to you. And obviously, you know, Mark comes to this work through his experience and through his life and through his own testimony for you as, you know, just the liberatory superstar that you are. I'm going to try not to overpraise you, but like, it's going to be hard. Um, <laughs> for you as an organizer and a movement builder, what was your hypothesis as you were first being grabbed, being activated, being organized into advocacy for survivors? And I was trying to think about it. I remember being in shock when reparations passed. Even going into City Hall, when we knew it was going to be passed, I was still like, I got to see this. Like, I can't <laughs> believe we we got this. Because of like, I think the way, you know, my parents who are organizers or are, you know, are they're old, older now and retired. So they're not really doing a whole lot of organizing, but I grew up around it. So I had like an idea around like revolution, like you have to overthrow the system in order to really get any big wins. 
And then it was like, oh, but we can actually get like wins on the road to changing the whole system. Like you can still get wins. It's not like only that, right? Like we can have harm reductive things while we're fighting for complete systems change. And so I was just kind of sitting in that like disbelief and awe, like realization, like, oh, it's possible to to do something like that has never been done before. I guess my hypothesis was that we had to have systems change. Like I had such deep respect for Miriam. And so I was like, I'm I'm a, I'm a trust this recharge group. You know, I'm, <laughs> I don't know these people, but I'm a trust this. And like, I, I would come away shocked after every meeting <laughs> and like so impressed. Like, oh my God, this is like, everyone's working together. There's not like, you know, it was totally different culture of organizing. So it was kind of almost a, like, I was going to say faith, but I don't mean that in like a spiritual sense, really, but more like, let's see what happens. Let's be a part of experimenting. And, you know, maybe this can turn into something great. And I guess maybe the ultimate hypothesis was the belief in the people. I've always felt and trusted that we are brilliant and are the solution. And so maybe that was the undergirding kind of hypothesis of let's see what happens. The people are brilliant. Mm. So I want to trace a little bit. We've gotten into both of it actually in your answers, but a little bit of that path to the like convergence um, that, that has led to to that win and then the work that's that's come since. Asim, because you alluded to it, let's go to you first here. Like, What was the shape of the fight around this particular uh, struggle when you entered? And how did we get to the point where a reparations ordinance was even on the table? I remember I first started hearing about John Burge and torture when I was around 14-ish. I was at an action and this little white lady, Mark knows the name of this person, but I always forget, came up to me and was like really emotional I was like, do you know torture is happening? And I was used to being around organizers who are not from Chicago. You know, I'm like an adolescent at this time. So the divide was just very pronounced. Because like what I was living through had no relation to. So I just thought this was some crazy white lady. <laughs> but then I started seeing the coverage. So it was in my consciousness, like in my periphery, for a while as I saw it increase. And then um, was it 2014, after Damo was killed, I'd known Miriam by that point for maybe uh, almost 20 years or something. And um, she put out the call for WeCharge. And, you know, I, I, by that point, watched Oakland uprise after Oscar Grant. You know, I remember Amadou Diallo in New York, you know, Rakia had just been killed. And I remember Chairman Fred was at the funeral. I remember, you know, like watching that, you know, Trayvon, you know, had happened. Right. And I, I started becoming way more curious about why it seemed like U.S. policing was extra specially violent to Black folks in a way that I didn't have theory to make sense of. And it was something that I had always struggled with you know, growing up where these folks, these organizers who are not from Chicago, not from the city, 
and couldn't make sense of like gangs. You know, all my friends were in gangs. Every single person I dated was in, you know, like that Chicago life. And so it's just started becoming more like I, I need to make sense of this. I have like theory around revolution that I grew up in hearing about struggles in other countries, liberation struggles, but it didn't make sense to me. And so I became very, very curious. I couldn't make sense of the why. Why were police in in this country so intent on killing Black folks? And then, you know, my best friend uh, growing up, we were in the same class from eight years old through high school, lived right next door to each other. And her brother was killed in our senior year by CPD. And so I'm holding all these experiences, you know, that I had and did not have the understanding for the why. It was that confusion that was really a driving force for me. And Miriam was just someone who I always had just deep, deep respect for and where I could be curious with her and try to figure these things out. And she got the class divide of you know, these other organizers and and why I, I had left organizing for some years because of that. I could bring these questions and actually engage in real exploration around it. So when Damo was killed and the response, you know, his community and his friends got together, it was a convergence of where I had been really trying to figure things out. It was like a puzzle piecing together when I joined WeCharge for myself. So when eight young folks went to Geneva charging CPD with with genocide and torture, um, came back, Project NIA, People's Law Office, survivors like Mark and others were like, now's the time. Um, Rahm Emanuel is is the most weak he has ever been. This is the first time a mayor had been forced into a runoff in almost 50 years in the city. And we're on the footsteps of the Ferguson uprising and all of this political opening happening. And it was really the brilliance of like Miriam and Joey and Mark and Anthony and and Daryl Cannon, who were like, now's the time. Let's get this reparations ordinance that had been thought dead, stuck in the rules committee for like three years. Let's get it out of committee, organize and force Rahm Emanuel to pass it. And so I was always down to fight, you know, my, my kind of upbringing is, is you fight back. It's the principle of it. You fight back, you fight back, you fight back. I didn't think we would win. I didn't. And we fucking won. I was, like, <laughs> I was so surprised. Like, I was like, holy shit, you know, thank God I wasn't leading anything. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes you just have to be someone who shows up you don't have to be someone who thinks it'll win yeah, like that yeah. you don't need everyone to think it'll win you know and so we'll talk a little bit more about like what that win means as we discuss what the center is doing now but i just want to transition to you mark you kind of in your hypothesis story talk about the community that formed and the awareness that formed from folks experience so before activists were able to be moved or before that, you know, little old white lady was able to be brought to tears. And I don't want to make fun of her being She's moved by this. She's an inciting incident. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> like it is moving and it, you should be tearful when, when you actually learn the, the depths of it. I, I pictured Jane Elliott, by the way. That was <laughs> in my head. <laughs> She's like, do you know? Why do you have blue do eyes? You know? All right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so Mark, I, I want to get your story because for me, if my memory serves correct, you were the first survivor that I ever heard 
speak and teach me about this is not something in the past. The living flesh and blood is right here in front of you. And here is your reality that you are unaware of. Can you tell the story of whether it's personally or collectively how the understanding of violence and trauma that you experienced personally then started to be recognized as a collective experience or a communal experience? So how did the the community form mostly inside? And then what was it like as the outside organizing community started to really recognize the seriousness and take it on with the, the fervor that Aislinn just named? First of all, I always label it as the police started this with me as a African-American kid, not going to school, not capable of reading nor writing. And now finding myself in 1981 locked inside of a interrogation room, hell incommunicado. At 16 years old, right? Yep, 16 years of age and held in communicado of my parents and basically reaching the realization, hey, we poem. So being poem, that meant that I had to be represented by members of our Cook County Public Defender's Office who would never investigate. You know, being sentenced to a juvenile natural life, that means forever inside of the prison system, absent any form of parole, that kind of like pushed me to fight. And then once achieving some educational achievements that I never thought that I would achieve, it opened a whole new reality that not only did we torture people inside of our interrogation rooms, but we locked young kids on death row and we tortured them through forms of death penalty. Uh, Sitting inside a prison for 28 years, it was my dream and my privilege to come out and to at least fight for those men and women that still had to remain always keeping at the forefront of my little old mother and realizing just how hard it was to get people to understand that, yes, Chicago police officers did torture people stemming from 1972 up until 1991 when Birds was suspended. Those tortures didn't stop, however. Through subordinates of John Burge, which most people ignore, coming out of the prison system, looking at the reality now, Trayvon Martin being brutally killed, it helped me to reflect back to when I was sitting in the prison cell, looking at how Rodney King had been terrorized by police. Torture reparations to me was not a surprise due to the fact that throughout the history of torture, city officials have always tried to cook up some type of idea or scheme to basically get past the large majority of torture cases. 57 people being tortured are the heirs of what we call Chicago police reparations. Out of those 57 cases, it was a smaller percentage than seven people that were working jobs. Now, approximately half of those individuals are working jobs. I'm not going to say that 
This is 100% the work of the Chicago Torture Justice Center. But I think that people have progressed a little bit since getting torture reparations. I make it clear that torture reparations is slave reparations. How can you replace 28 years of someone's life through $100,000 and the services that is being provided. All of us came out comatose as to the result of trauma. So people say, well, you all came out and you were affected as to the result of trauma. Now you're out of prison. No, being out of prison, it really made the problem even worse. They experimented on many of us. And their experiment was to ensure that we would never, ever be able to make it out here in this society. These little old mothers who basically wouldn't give up are the ones that wear the crown of torture reparations. Now, there were many other organizations that this could not be achieved without their assistance, but it was really the little old mothers who would sit at the tables and say, we can do it when no one else felt that we can do it. I did not initially support torture reparations, and I'll explain why. I didn't initially support it because I felt that $20 million would not correct this problem. Even though we received less than the $20 million, Looking at some of my brothers and some of my sisters and how they had to survive, I was working for the campaign to end the death penalty. So that means I had a job. Many of them did not have a job. Many of them had no income. Many of them had no direction. And I looked at this as being a start to give them at least some opportunity due to the fact that the system really messed all of our lives up. They terrorized us. Many people don't even understand having electrical shock boxes connected to your genitals and to your testicles, having them uh, grabbed and squeezed, being called little nigger boy, being attached with these alligator clips to certain areas of your body once they have been heated up, cigarette burns being found on people's body, meaning police officers taking cigarettes and putting cigarettes out on human beings, even throwing one individual outside of the window of Area 3 violent crimes on the south side of Chicago and claiming that the individual fell out of the window that he tried to escape. So these police officers really, they created a culture of decay to the African-American and Latino community that we're still yet fighting to rebuild so many fathers and so many mothers being incarcerated and people fail to realize how the community is impacted based off of these crooked cops. Torture reparations to me is a start, and we really need to start to take an honest look at torture reparations and repairing the harm uh, that these police officers, as well as our prison systems, as well as our prosecutors, our public defenders, they all provided 
dysfunctional services to black and brown poor people. And I say that we need to hold them all accountable, of course, starting with the Chicago Police Department. So much there. And I I want us to move into these learnings of what reparations is and can be. There is the city ordinance that is explicitly and intentionally named reparations. But through that ordinance, the center has been continuing on this process of repair that is not controlled by those who are responsible or need to be held accountable. It is led by the community. And so in that, I think, you know, CTJC is at a global forefront of understanding as these demands for repairing genocidal, colonial carceral harm across the world, understanding what that really looks like on the day-to-day and how beautiful but also complex that can be. I want to kind of, one, just for folks listening, name what was in the ordinance. One, a public acknowledgement of torture and of the harm. Two, the promise of a memorial, which we are still working to bring into life. Three, uh, an investment in city college education for survivors, their children and grandchildren. Obviously, a payment that came down to $5 million for 57 people. Just do the math on that. Not $5 million per person uh, for 57 of the hundreds of folks that we know who have been tortured. And then last but certainly not least, the building of a resource center, which was loosely defined. That work of building Chicago Torture Justice Center has gone through a few iterations, but now is in a longer term home. And so I want to kind of bring us to, we've talked about their violence and how horrible this history is, but what is the actual work? Because they're not going to do it. What is the actual work and what have you learned from providing resources, having larger political thrust and movement building and creating a communal container for folks who have shared in a collective experience of harm. I want to just add, there's one more part of the reparations ordinance, which is the curriculum. Mm, So um, it included the creation of a mandatory teaching of the history and legacy and, you know, continuing uh, problem of Chicago policing and the violence that it perpetuates which is taught in, it's supposed to be taught in all eighth and 10th grade social studies classes. And that also was a really, really huge win. Part of, you know, what I think was so transformative about our reparations ordinance was really the least important part was the financial part, because the 5.5 million or whatever that amount was, is such a pittance, right? It resulted in maybe a maximum of 130000 for people for whom they had not received any other financial settlement. So there is another survivor who only ended up getting like $5,000 from that pot because they had received other settlement money. So the monetary amount was nominal and really insulting, but it was the other things that were really revolutionary and transformative. A learning that that I continue to have is around how important it was for the ordinance to not be focused solely on money. Some of what Mark was talking about when he said the 20 million was referencing the earlier drafts of the ordinance, the city negotiated down. But a lot of our national conversation around reparations is solely fixed on money, which limits our imagination 
when we talk about what is truly owed. The experience of torture, but also just the experience of criminalization and incarceration that millions and millions and millions of people have lived through and are living through right now destabilizes lives, including the individual incarcerated, but also that entire family, the community, the society has tremendous impact from that. That is invisibilized. And I think part of what I'm learning and have been learning with the work of the center is how massive the consequence of state violence really is. And one act of a violence that a state agent, be it a police officer, a correctional officer, um, a customs, border patrol, the wide variety of people who are participating in law enforcement in this country has such impact on a social level that we in the dominant conscience have no awareness for yet. And I think our movement um, that all of us are collectively involved in is really creating awareness and consciousness for how world shattering state violence is on the physical person, but also like we understand that people are locked in cages, right? We understand you physically cannot go home and be with your family. But Beyond that, what also happens internally, the PTSD that is incorporated, even with incarceration, the desensitization of understanding what's happening inside your body, even with hunger, right? And light sensitivity, um, being on institutionally regimented times of eating, uh, being released from that, then having to feed yourself. Like that's a whole relearning process of, oh, this is a hunger pain. The socialization that happens and then desocialization that happens, um, all of the overwhelming sense of being unsafe at all times, both inside the cages, right? And then upon release, knowing that at any time, because of how policing works, because it, it comes straight out of slavery, our system is very adept at reincarcerating people at the drop of a dime. And so that real threat of I am out here, but the fragility of it, right? And we see that now, even with the reparations ordinance, with um, in, in Illinois, the Pretrial Fairness Act, which enabled um, Illinois to become the first state in the country to ban cash bail for a, a number of causes, not completely, but for a number of reasons. And we see how quite literally the fraternal order of police has been attempting to reincarcerate survivors they have petitioned our state's attorney kim fox over and over again they've introduced legislation you know their intention is to reincarcerate people who have been exonerated so that fear is not just a consequence of ptsd right as in its past it's a present fear because we know it's a very real possibility. Yeah, it's just traumatic stress. It's, yeah. It's, it's not, just not, traumatic it's, stress. It's, exactly. it's not post. <laughs> it's not post. <laughs> yeah. And and Mark lived through, you know, during um the beginning of, of the pandemic and quarantine, he was targeted by the Illinois State Police and and went searching for him, went to his sister's house, then his girlfriend's house, who's now his wife. Um, arrested him, hid him out in the suburbs, right? And they do this. This is the normal operating of how policing works. 
And so people come out, survivors come out, and anyone incarcerated comes out knowing that. There's so many learnings just on how broad of a societal consequence our reality of incarceration has continuing to foster feelings of being hunted and never being safe. Yeah. And I love how you um, began that answer, like starting with the limitations and sometimes the disruptions of the money component being forefronted. Well, at the same time, of course, like holding the reality that people's like economic position is also very tenuous and how that informs the the revolving door of that and that kind of targeting. Because I think in like larger public discourse for people who aren't in relationship with people who have been targeted or have been incarcerated, right? Like you see that front page news story of like the settlement and you go like, oh, well, that's a lot of money. So therefore, like good for them <laughs> things. Yeah, the, things have been addressed. And, and I think that that kind of like knee jerk reaction is also very connected to like ideas of how, you know, funding gets directed to the police of like, if we pump more money toward this thing, that will address the problem. And there here are these like aberrations. We just we cut a check and then we can just, you know, keep things moving as normal. Coming out of what I heard from both of you, it, it feels more concrete to me of like, the vast difference between settlement <laughs> and repair and that the repair happens in the acknowledgement and the attempt to redress and respond to all of these other levels, whether that's like on the psychic, socio-emotional, communal, intercommunal, familial levels, like what actually happens to people and, and starting from a place of how do we, you know, responsibly and meaningfully as organizers gather that information in connection and then take that and say, no, 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 no. This is what needs to be responded to. And we're demanding that response with the terms set by the people who are affected. Does that ring true? And how do y'all see that that distance between the way conversations around settlement and, and repair work? And, and I think really more so the like way that conversations around money can derail the conversation. Well, you know, this, the settlement language just comes from the legal framework. So it's it's completely devoid of... <laughs> any humanity, <laughs> any <laughs> real humanity. It, it comes out of, you know, in, in our law, it was greatly influenced, of course, by Britain. But in practice, our law comes out of the slaveocracy. And so, so much of our legal framework directly um, was created out of white men figuring out how to parse out wealth that they were accumulating through the slave trade. It makes no sense for a child who was murdered by police, right, or enduring torture, as if that alone answers the harm in, in any kind of real way. It answers material needs in terms of people's ability to, to pay the immense cost that it takes to live in, in the United States because we don't have universal health care. We don't have universal higher education. We don't have guaranteed income. We don't have many of the employment provisions that many other countries have, right? Little to no safety net here for people and especially for people who are historically oppressed and impoverished. So I don't want to dismiss the importance of a financial compensation because it's within the context of this country, but it doesn't do anything to actually prevent the ongoing occurrence of, of whatever the injustice was, right? In, in many ways, the system uses financial settlements as an attempt at a Band-Aid 
to quiet people down, to nullify people so that they don't fight more for criminal convictions or worse, right, in the eyes of the system, which would be a reconfiguration or an overthrow of the whole system that produced it, you know. So um, the settlements are, are complicated for that reason. And people deserve it, right? So I, I will never go against a family. I will never go against a survivor who receives it. They deserve it and more. I do truly believe in um, the redistribution of that wealth, right? Like it's not their wealth anyway. It's our wealth anyway and more. However, where I'm feeling, intuiting, is that the way that U.S. capitalism exists um, and because the public comments has been attacked so heavily over the last 40, 50 years through the rise of neoliberalism and all of the consequential aspects of it, like mass incarceration and policing, our relationship as a society to money is, I want to say perverted, but I don't really know of a healthy relationship to money, but um, <laughs> but there's an overimportance on it, right? That the money will be the rectification. It's an aspect of, but it is not going to redesign the systems. It doesn't at all do that. In fact, sometimes more money can create more problems, as we've heard. Oh, for sure. <laughs> and I know, you know, more money, more problems, you know, that give it up to like 90s hip hop. But I mean, even just looking at like BLM and all the like controversies over and there's so many. Right. But the way that even with the uprising. Right. And we look like just the movement for black lives as a whole, the uprising, many people's response to that was donating to orgs, which is great. I'm not saying that people shouldn't have people should. Right. But that is so often the first thing that we have access to because of the way that we're socialized in this country, instead of, okay, now we need to get rid of prosecutors. Now we need to get rid of like all these judges and completely reimagine a legal system that is not tied to property and completely overhaul our whole municipal government and all the things, right? Which takes so much more labor, so much more thought work. And, and community, right? Like you can community. you can oh, donate yeah. by yourself. You don't have to talk to anybody. You don't have to be responsible. You can just click. Yeah. So I, I think it's a muscle that has atrophied our ability to be in community and really struggle through trying to figure out solutions and struggle together. And so the settlement versus other things brings all that up, right? It's mm -hmm. not going to replace freeing them all. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to serve the role of some of the other things that the center does. So may maybe this is an opportunity to talk about some of the types of support and healing and, and how y'all think of that as part of the mission of the center. Yeah. We developed our politicized healing definition out of a two-day workshop co-facilitated by Princess Hemphill and Mark Anthony Johnson, who are both somatics practitioners and organizers and educators out of generative somatics, as well as BOLD, which is Black Organizing for Leadership and Dignity. We came together, we brought, you know, staff at the time, which was only like five people or something like that, survivors, you know, the Survivor Leadership Council, but also 
other, you know, survivors and just a part of the family and other community members and stakeholders um, came together. And we created this definition that basically, in essence, says that our healing is political and our political organizing is also a part of our healing work. We live them in a symbiotic way. And we often ask the question, who does it serve if you are unwell? And that question is deliberate because it highlights the political nature of wellness, of unwellness, and opens us up to being able to really get to get a little bit deeper underneath the skin in the marrow of why the state has invested so much of its resources in creating trauma and sickness in our people and how working to be well, working to heal is also a revolutionary act and is a necessary part of us working to dismantle these systems. The pervasiveness of violence um, that is the system means that it lives deeply, deeply inside of us. And so it's important for us to have that awareness and really struggle with being able to identify how it lives in us, how it affects our relationships. And we really are striving to struggle collectively and to be in deep relationship with each other in ways that foster senses of safety so that we can uncover this is a way we can connect. And this is a way that connection enables us to work better together to create the world that we want that is less violent, more liberatory, hopefully more life-inducing and nurturing. Yeah, I want I want to get into the nitty-gritty of that real quick. What are a couple of the practices that are in that spirit that whether that's somatic practices or how y'all communicate like for people I'm thinking about listeners who are, you know, in coalition community organizing space and are trying to figure out how do we treat each other and and communicate in healing ways. So what have y'all learned that's for your context at least effective or helpful that comes out of that practice? Well, we are right now doing a year-long embodiment training course with the whole team. Um, and Damon explicitly asked this question, and I didn't, and I kept forgetting to answer it. So it our one team of, now, One of eight million questions. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of questions over here. <laughs> our team now has, we, we were originally four and then five, and now we are 16, I think, and we are half uh, formerly incarcerated survivors. And that is really important for us. Just to pull yeah. that out, right? When, when Mark estimated of the 56 or so folks included in the original ordinance was that seven people had employment in total. And what you just named is that eight survivors are employed just with the center. So just for folks listening to kind of track that growth and progress. Sorry, I just wanted to, that's just yeah. exciting to Run know. The stats. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So we're doing this year-long embodiment leadership course with Alta Star, who was one of the founders of Bold, um, another uh, somatics practitioner, amazing, brilliant thinker, writer, um, longtime organizer in Harlem, New York. We've been doing these monthly sessions with Alta. Um, some of the practices we have learned are around how to say no, right? So we're often in our dominant culture, not well-versed in being able to give embodied answers to requests. So how to give and receive requests, how to say no, how to say maybe, how to say yes, in a way that is embodied, where we can feel our full dignity. 
feel our full width, our full length, feel our back and our history, right? Um, and so we also have, as a part of this year-long training, um, been working on being able to feel embodied, feel centered, feel grounded, and being aware of when we are in situations, which is, you know, in our daily lives, pretty constant, when we have grabs that move us from that center, that move us from feeling grounded, how we can return back to that. And understanding that we are able to reach our highest selves. And by that, I don't mean that in kind of a, you know, woo-woo way, but in literally like our highest evolutionary parts of our brain, our prefrontal cortex, we're able to access critical thinking and long-term reasoning when we feel safest. And so how can we find and be in practice of figuring out how we can both individually and collectively foster these senses of safety so that we can be in relationship functioning from those places. And then when we're not to have awareness of, oh, I'm feeling a grab, which is triggering my sympathetic nervous system to respond in a particular way, right? Which means that I might be feeling fight, flight, flee. And have awareness around that so that it isn't an ambiguous thing, but something that we're, we're able to identify. I am in fight mode right now. I'm, I'm not feeling safe, right? There's something that's either happening inside my body or externally or both that is giving me a sense of unsafeness, which doesn't mean that it's actually real, right? But it's that my nervous system is, is, is sensing that. All of that works to expand agency both for the individual and the collective so that we can have more choice in, in how we are with each other. And what we aim to be is to be a, a part of the larger movement to end policing in all of its forms, to end state violence in all of its forms. And so we are actively trying to be in more choice, more awareness around how we can be a part of that movement. And that involves our own ability to be embodied, our own ability to be able to feel what's happening and have awareness of what's happening. For you to follow up on that question, Mark, of what are some of the practices, I just want to like frame it some more. So you, you mentioned uh, the Survivor Repair Fund, which everyone should support if they have the resources. And Aislinn mentioned the, the embodiment work. What are some other of the processes, practices, services, and resources that happen within the scope of the center that make you the most proud as someone who is a part of this community and also undergoing your own healing journey while advocating for your comrades and loved ones? The number one would rest upon the fact that we have a clinical team that is able to at least communicate with individuals and to provide them with forms of therapy. You know, in the African-American community, we have never really seen these types of services unless we have left our community. Uh, I think that the reentry program with the center is very, very encouraging able to now be able to assist individuals leaving up out of our prison system is very, very 
important and trying to keep them in community with the center. Uh, as I stated earlier, we now have uh, two additional organizers with the center. This allows me an opportunity to now just rest just a little bit. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're the hardest working man in movement, Mark. Call <laughs> <laughs> having your hands into too many pots, but the bottom line mm. it is, is Mark, you might, I'm sorry to interrupt. You might hold the record for double zooming. I think I've, I've, I've seen you double zoom probably at a higher rate than anybody else. I'm sorry. Go, oh go <laughs> well, let me tell you, it's really, it's, it's, it's my honor. And a lot of people would never understand that because they're not wearing the shoe of the survivor, but sitting inside of the prison cell since the age of 16 years old, and then the system opening up the door the first thing I really wanted to figure out is, man, what's wrong? Do the people hear us? Well, I begin to learn immediately the people are hearing us. It's uh, an issue with how do we get the people up so that they can be responsive to some of these needs and some of these cries. But I am very, very encouraged by the direction of the center. I encourage all torture survivors, including the community, to get up and to stand with us and in areas where that maybe you may see us lacking in. Let's talk about it and let's see if we can correct that to be able to help the community. But in an overall picture here, I believe I was born as a fighter. So that means when I popped out, I was like holding up a protest sign said, let's go get them, <laughs> you know. But being able to have the opportunity to work with so many amazing people, having the opportunity to watch so many people walk out of the prison system, man, it's 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 been a dream come true. And I realized that the actors, when they come up with this great movie and they say, well, it's a dream come true, they're speaking about their royalties out of it. <laughs> I'm speaking about the royalties and saving human lives from suffering inside of our prison system where that so many people did not give a damn about them and really to have a torture justice center, I ask that everywhere around the globe that you begin to not only pay attention to the Chicago Torture Justice Center, how about fighting to get what we have achieved in your particular states? I think this is very important. We short about like 15 Chicago torture justice centers in Chicago alone. Yeah. So in hearing that we need 15 CTJCs and then we need to change that the first letter a bunch. We need some A through Z TJCs. All across from the yeah. Anchorage Torture Justice Center <laughs> to the let's see, I'm ooh, to think of this Z City. Well, zoo for Kalamazoo, is that close enough <laughs> Wait, for the zoo? We, we, we can take that. We can shout out the All zoo. All right. Thank you very much. Um, shout out the zoo for no reason. <laughs> I, I, I want to you know, be, be considerate of your time and prompt y'all to like a final question. Uh, but just to add in there as, you know, not only an appreciator and observer, but as a participant in the work, the thing that I have observed as transformational and so powerful, and I think could be easily taken for granted is really immaterial. It's 
not just organizing space for political fights or advocating for other folks to be released or when the call goes out showing up the the ability the center has to just convene survivors right like when it happens it's like oh this is what we're supposed to be doing and you can move past oh if we weren't doing this there would be no gathering no convening no sharing of testimony outside of the informal network that exists of folks being inside together folks coming from the same neighborhood the like love and checking in on each other but to be able to sit in a circle and even if the agenda ain't you know everything's checked off the box seeing the power the the healing possibility um and then the hope that comes from four, five, 12, 25 folks that have experienced this horrible, horrible, tragic violence coming together and not just advocating for their humanity, embodying it to, you know, living with each other uh, in true community. So I, I just wanted to add that testimony as a participant and observer of, of the work that we and y'all do and lead. Um, and so with that, unless you have anything, Daniel, or help me frame this, I just want to give y'all a little legacy thing. I'm sorry. Um, there's a new organization of formerly incarcerated young people that has emerged called Real that sees themselves explicitly in a revolutionary context uh, that I've worked with. And I hosted their like launch fundraiser a few weeks ago. Um, and in talking to them, they know about this history in the center. Um, and in tr- they do a lot of like reentry programs as well as classes in the youth prisons while also advocating to close them. And one of the things that they did in figuring out what reentry looks like is explicitly in the legacy of CTJC have launched a repair fund for youth returning home from incarceration. So they're now shout out to real is a youth survivor repair fund uh, that is explicitly paying homage and sees itself in the legacy of CTJC. So just wanted to give y'all that. And now my long winded conclusion that I'm inviting y'all to is we talked about the methods, talked about repair funds. We talked about embodiment circles. We talked about even some of the the, the political fights that, that have to go on from those methods. What are some of the conclusions y'all have from sitting in the work? Um, and in those conclusions about what torture justice looked like, what repair and reparation looked like, what further hopes do you have that weren't possible when you first entered the work? So where do you sit? What are your conclusion? And what what do you see going forward? Especially for folks who want to build something like this in their own space. Exactly. Uh, Aisling? <laughs> <laughs> what are your conclusions? <laughs> oh, man. Well, first, I want to say, like, I didn't know that about this new group, this new org, Real. So Mm -hmm. that, like, brought tears to my eyes. That's so beautiful. I guess it's that, like, we are brilliant. You know, we, whoever is in that we for for the listener, we are, are who have allowed us to survive. We have always taken care of each other. That's how we survived slavery. You know, there there's such brilliance there that is not acknowledged. And part of part of why I'm really drawn to somatics work is because it it has a, an acknowledgement of that. There are so many resilience practices that we have been doing for years, for decades, for centuries. And acknowledging that is is a part of owning it, is a part of raising awareness. And there there is a radical aspect of how we have survived that is inspiring. And that includes the coming together and the ways that we have always built community, despite the mechanisms of the state um, to keep us apart and separate us. You know, Damon, as you were talking about the coming together 
and experiences, you know, of that. I just was remembering when we were at the Breathing Room Garden last year. Yep, it was last year. But what is time? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> and it was about maybe 30, maybe, um, survive, maybe 40, I don't know, um, came and we were, you know, trying to begin a conversation around expanding reparations. We didn't get through the check-in question <laughs> and it felt so right to mm -hmm. let it happen that way. Mm -hmm. You know, the people were seeing each other, many of whom for the first time were seeing each other outside of incarceration. It was so moving to witness people hugging after being inside for decades and being finally, you know, on the outside and seeing that reconnection. This is also after like, you know, being in quarantine, right? And so the, all the isolation of that. And also just to bring it full circle, there were also mothers present, right? So yeah. mothers whose children had been incarcerated for decades, who were still inside, were able to see the possibility of one, my son is coming home, and two, that there is this community and this movement that supports me and us. Um, and so watching that recognition happen in real time was like, yeah, uh, mind blowing. Yeah, I guess I'm sitting with just the power of being in community. And I, I don't feel that like I've, I've fully been able to articulate it or been able to like sift out all of why it's so powerful, but there's just so much power in fostering community and being together. That's one of the most rewarding and healing aspects of, of the work. We really do need each other to heal and we heal together. I'll say by 20. 27. And yes, we're going to have to still fight to make sure that the doors here remain open. But I'll say by 2027, the torture center will have a staff of at least 25 torture survivors on staff. We will have what would be considered as the kickoff to any type of protest, any type of court uh, type uh, project, any type of project that we want, and it would be led by survivors. So that's one angle. The second angle is, is that we will have the opportunity to witness probably within the next two or three years, a nice percentage of torture survivors who will walk out of the prison system. I do say free them all, but I also look at just how evil and corrupt our criminal justice system is and the fight continues. And, you know, whoever is left behind, that don't mean that we're not going to be constantly struggling and fighting for them. But I just grew to always understand it's always someone that is left behind when you're dealing with these institutional racist people. And I learned that word from you, Brother Damon, using institution. <laughs> uh, that's a legacy right there. Yeah. <laughs> I find that hard to believe, but I, I, I receive it and appreciate that. <laughs> I used to just call them straight out. IDOC, Cook uh, County State's Attorneys. But, you know, I just think that, you know, right now we're in our little 
so-called glory because we're watching people actually walk out of prisons and whatnot who we felt would never ever get out of prison they are walking out i think with the safety act when it does take effect in january it's going to be a lot of empty prison space and that's going to start the new next wave of how the system is going to attempt to uh, come out with all sorts of different laws to re-incarcerate people for just minor offenses. But the struggle definitely continues. The community is great. The torture survivors uh, that are going through their situations, we want them to know that we are there for them. And if no one has given the Chicago Torture Justice Center phone number, let me do so. 773-966-6666. So let me see that again. (laughs) 773 Nine, that's the most important numeral <laughs> on the list. Nine, six, 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 six. So in closing, Brother Damon, guess what? I love all of these wonderful people and the struggle definitely continues. And I'm hoping and I'm praying in the next few years that we see another uh, attachment of Chicago torture reparations. That was Aislinn and Mark from the Chicago Torture Justice Center. What a joy to get to cap off the season with that conversation. And as always, we get to slide into this peer review here. Let's do it. Let's let's get up in here. Hoping I don't offend all my peers. Eva, what uh what jumped out from you from the conversation? Our peer? <laughs> I've got a long list here, but I'll <laughs> I'll get us started off. I bet Damon has a long list too. Um, you know, I'm going to try to control myself. I'm going to, you know, you know. <laughs> this is let's go out with a bang, man. If this show goes like 50 episodes, the peer review is going to be longer than the interviews by that point. <laughs> yeah. So thank you all for listening and bearing with us through these as we extend and expound. <laughs> um, I thought that Aislinn's words about the invisibilization of state violence um, and how world shattering were the words that, that she used there that is. And I think that came out in the conversation about how, you know, how hard it really is to, to repair after the kind of harm, the the continued state violence um, desensitization when she was talking about the socialization on the inside, the desocialization coming out, coming in, just the broad societal consequences of this state violence, which was for so long invisibilized, that reparations are not just economic, that it's acknowledgement, that it's redress. I think that, you know, this has so much to teach us as we fight for different types of reparations in so many of the communities that we work in. I think knowing space internally, one thing that I even want to point out is how movement brought it about. And, you know, we get a lot into that, like, notion of settlement versus longer process in the conversation. And what's important to know is that, like, this was not done from an altruistic place on on behalf of the state, right? Like, we have to set up the context that we were coming out of the release of the Laquan McDonald video, and there was a real crisis of governance in the Rahm Emanuel administration in Chicago. And so, in many ways, this was an opportunistic 
response of like, okay, well, what is the community saying? And this was like one of the largest pushes or, or greatest demands of movement at the time. Um, and Mark talks about it. And I know how a lot of survivors feel from the other side of the negotiating table. It was like a business negotiation, right? Like it was pushing down as much of the cost or as much of the investment as possible. And so like, how do you navigate that balance of like, this is not being one air quote, because I think victory is something we always have to to challenge, but this is not being one because the system sees itself through the lens that we see it, right? Like it's not actually invested in like liberatory repair we are always pushing up against power that is not invested in the type of repair that we're looking for. So when we talk about reparations on a national scale, when we talk about reparations for some of the global consequences of colonialism and imperialism, we have to understand that the people most impacted need to be at the table and that the other side, if we want to call it that, the other side of the table is going to be pushing against our interests. And so we're going to have to always be navigating or fighting harder, even when it feels like we're on the cusp of or actually do formally win in, in certain ways. Yeah, that's true when it comes to negotiating over, you know, dollar signs. Um, but it's also true in terms of the other types of care. You know, when you and Aislinn were talking about that gathering at Breathing Room where mm-hmm. survivors and their families were together, I can't remember who it was, whether it was you or her who made that point that like, if we weren't doing this, there's no other formal space in which this gathering would have happened. And that gathering was meaningful and, you know, on the pathway toward healing for a lot of the people who were there, like, you know, Illinois Department of Corrections is not going to do that. They're not putting together reunions. <laughs> yeah, the structures that created the harm are not going to build the systems to heal that harm. They can be demanded to participate or invest. That's political work. But like that has to happen. Like you're saying, not just like led or at the table by survivors, but like everyone else in addition to the survivors has to understand that that is an institution that's separate from the one that does the harm. Like that's not a reasonable expectation to have of the harmers is that they're going to like come back to the table and be like, whoops, we want to (laughs) help, you know? One of the things that strikes me is these two last episodes as we've delved into our comrades who are organizing and working from the inside is that both Free Them All and CTJC have forefronted wellness and the political nature of unwellness, mm-hmm. as Aislinn put it, a survivor-led focus on being well is a focus that also allows us to bring our full agency to the table as a collective, that without that step, that we can't come together to get this work done in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the, word, sure. the word trauma, right, gets thrown around a lot in our society. And, and you know, in many cases for good use, right? Like we need to actually be more trauma informed as a general public. Uh, But in the episode, this politicized healing framework really teaches one, that oppression is the distribution of trauma and that trauma is not just some like ephemeral social concept. Like it, it has physiological effect on your nervous system on your ability to process on your ability to respond. It puts you in fight, flight, freeze, I think there's another F in that in, in that alliteration. Get funky. But it puts you in, in, in this fight, flight, freeze response mode. And then your body is smart of like recognizing it needs that to survive. And then it can be in that mode in places where it no longer serves your body or serves your relationships. And so part of the work is 
just healing for healing's sake because the 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 loss is unimaginable and some of it cannot be recovered in terms of just the connection to community and what happened to the actual body but it's not just healing for healing's sake there is power that is working to be built right like ctjc sees itself as part of liberatory and, and helping to lead liberatory movement right so what does it mean for folks to gather together, we talk about these beautiful circles and beautiful gatherings, but I think organizers who have not experienced extreme state violence and torture experience this of like, we bring our triggers, we bring our traumas to spaces. Uh, but for those who have experienced the unimaginable, right? Like how do we equip folks to be able to sustain relationship, making decisions, coordinating, having schedules, just the anxieties of organizing itself, right? Like in some of these first eight conversations, we talk about how hard this work is in general, and those of us who have been privileged in terms of our relationship to state and carceral violence, you know, we feel this heavy load and burden. And so imagine if you're actually having these phone calls with folks that are still inside every day or majority of the people that you grew up with. Because the thing about this tragedy is that in the 70s, 80s and 90s, the target of this population was, was teenagers. So they're, they're really coming of age in carceral spaces and spending, you know, I just turned 30, but spending Happy 28, birthday. thank you, Happy birthday. <laughs> spending 28, 29, 30, 33 years locked up. And so your whole development is taking place in the space that is torturing you after being tortured. And so, um, yes, that point of healing and particularly bringing in this somatic tradition and a black led somatic tradition, grounding the way in which the body and the nervous system is part of this political work. Yeah. I mean, I think that's so necessary for anyone trying to carry that weight and do that work. And, you know, I think about Mark's understanding of his motivation or, or what keeps him going and the feeling of like, in some ways, kinship with the people that he's working with and for and toward this feeling of like wanting to understand at first why they weren't being heard and then getting out and realizing that people were paying attention, right? That that wasn't the issue, that it was about the steps between awareness and freedom <laughs> and mm -hmm. trying to build those steps for himself and for other people like to your point like it can get a little like uh cliche or, or kind of like brushed over what it means to be survivor led or led by those most impacted but like that is a wonderful example of like many other people are not going to have that same relationship to it and so i i really just want to give homage to this work and how it's directly organized me <laughs> and my close community. Um, and I think in that, I'm trying to talk through this complicated history between win and loss or the way in which we talk about victory. You know, I knew fuck jails and prisons, right? But just how distinctly violent and cruel and inhumane this system is, it, it was one what confirmed my abolitionist leaning sensibilities. Whenever someone said we need a police system, I would tell them about this history. And for me, it confirmed how these systems are irredeemable. And then we win, right? And so now reparations is possible. Pushing things in our radical imagination, we don't have to actually temper our points and our analysis and we can get things through. And then I think there's the malaise or this idea that, oh, we've won now. Oh, we are in this like post-victory celebratory place. And so in starting to actually work with CTJC and not just be at the celebrations and understanding for some folks, you know, 56 people received a settlement. There are hundreds of folks that experienced this. And so hearing 
the experience of someone going to speak about their experience and then some like liberal white person audience be like, oh, isn't this okay now? You guys got reparations for somebody who's gotten nothing, right? Like how actually that then becomes a, a deeper injury, right? And so, you know, victory, if we want to call it that, opened up my mind and activated me and plugged me in and created that container, that space for me to build deeper relationships with my community members that have been harmed. But then at the same time, it actually reduces some of like what I think the, the just the news watching eye can see is what's needed politically and how we have to continue to go forward in this commitment. So yeah, just the complexity or the dialectic of that, while I'm also feeling so honored to be able to speak on this history, to be a part of it, to be connected with this community, it really is immense and like has shaped my life in a really significant way. Eva, from a not-in-Chicago-all-the-time lens, where do you see kind of the ripple effects or the impacts of this win and the work that's come from it? You know, you talk to a lot of people doing cool shit in this world, so where do you see those (laughs) ripples showing up? You know, here in Los Angeles and in the work that Interrupting Criminalization does with groups all across the country, Aislinn's name is always getting pulled in. CTJC is always getting pulled into conferences. When we are talking about how to set up inside-outside mail, when we're talking about how to reach out to families, when we're talking about building community, I mean, I said it at the top and I'll say it again. I mean, these are the people to reach out to, the people who are building the plane as they fly it and who are so honest and transparent about that. I feel like that's one thing as an abolitionist model is that I love Aislinn referencing like one of the workshops they were doing with the whole staff and with everyone was the how to say no workshop. You know, it's not like, oh shit, we're abolitionists now and everything is like hunky-dory and we're always (laughs) nice to each other and we have perfect work-life balances and all of that. You know, it's political work, it's daily work, it's self-work, it's group work, it's all of the things. And this is such a great model of showing how beautifully messy that work is. And what Damon was saying a little while ago about victories, about winning, about, you know, how do we keep that balance of celebration in our moments of joy when we move that needle and understand that 500-year clock, that, you know, this is a second into that clock. And I, I think that CTJC is a great example of that, an example of raising consciousness, of celebrating together, but not leaving people behind making sure that half of that staff are survivors, making sure that, you know, these events are in community and go at the pace of the community that they're working for and with. Um, I am so biased. Don't ask me like unbiased Chicago questions, but I, I think people in my circles that I talk to across the country would agree. Minneapolis, Miami, Baltimore, Los Angeles, Washington, like all of these folks have been in the rooms with people from Chicago talking about this experience. And it certainly, you know, sets the stage for a lot of the battles that we've been working with across the country. And I think, you know, for a lot of the universal basic income, for a lot of the reentry projects, for a lot of the things that people are working on right now, this is a place to continue to look at and learn from. Yeah, I think what it does, as well as any experiment we've talked to this year, is show the different scales, both in time and space, that an experiment can be. This is both about specific people and their relationships, and it's about attempting to account for and heal centuries of harm or or provide pathways to that. It's about Chicago, but it's about the world. It's about now, but it's also about 400 years ago and centuries into the future. It's not just ripple effects. It's part of the lens that we can bring to this work. 
that great Grace Lee Boggs question, what time is it on the clock of the world? I'm glad that we'll have that in our back pocket as we wrap this season up. Let me do some shout outs before we get up out of here. All right, Pierre, (laughs) what do you got? (laughs) So one, again, I just want to shout out the space beyond what it offers to movement and politically, like what it's literally offered in my life. And even in times of injury and struggle and tragedy and loss, you know, the space that has learned how to respond to trauma even knows how to hold its own people. So one, just being directly gracious to me, but also we had the the brilliant Mark and Aislinn on, but we have to shout out more of the community. We got to shout out Greg. We got to shout out Kilroy. We got to shout out Demond. We got to shout out Carl. We got to shout out Latanya. We got to shout out Cindy, Gina, Val, and so many other folks that make CTJC's work possible and really want to highlight again that there's trauma of folks coming home, but there are so many survivors of this violence and of this torture that are still inside and have not been freed. So when we say free them all, it is a real rally cry, is a real demand, but so much love to the to the space for not just being good teachers that can show up and do the interview or be at the conference, but actually be the human beings that we need to be with each other. And I I I have borne witness to this praxis that really, you know, can be life-saving in, in, in very in very real ways. I want to give one last shout out to, I mean, this was raised during the conversation, but to the moms and the aunties and yes. the cousins and the people that start this work. And I don't mean just in this episode, but in the thread throughout this season, you know, I think that what we wanted to demonstrate and the people that we brought to the table in conversation is that this is you and can be you. You know, if you have an idea in your community, if you have a problem that you are facing, you know, this is the people power that, you know, we have observed. And we just wanted to share a little bit about how people have brought those ideas and those problems and those issues to their community tables and done something about it. CTJC is this amazing, you know, feat of organizing, I think is kind of what I've been talking about in this episode, but it is also something born out of community in that way. Aislinn, who is like one of my organizing heroes, you know, was just a person on the street in community who saw what needed to be done and the people that it needed to be done with. And so we at this table, you know, and the people that, that we're choosing here, we were those people once too, and are still those people. And that's what makes the organizing work so powerful. Yeah. Shout out to all of the people who saw a thing that needed to be done and then contributed to do it that we've talked to this season. Shout out to our listeners who are doing that. Uh, we, of course, still want to hear from you about what you're making, how these conversations are shifting your thinking. You can contact us at millionexperiments at gmail.com. <laughs> Correct? You can contact us at millionexperiments.com through the contact tab there. And, and while you're there, make sure to check out all of the experiments that we have not yet gotten a chance to chop it up with. Eva, where else can they find more of the work? You can always find Interrupting Criminalization online at Interrupt Crim. And like Kiss said, you can go to millionexperiments.com. And I don't know, by the time this episode airs, we might have a new and fancy millionexperiments.com. So definitely go and check it out soon. Um, We're going to be throwing up experiments all this fall, all next year on a regular basis. So stay tuned. And stay tuned for some exciting new projects on this. On the media side, we have a 
film coming to you soon. We don't have a date for you, but the, we'll, we'll, we'll just say coming soon, like that first trailer. Uh, so keep an eye out for that. Make sure you subscribe to Million Experiments. Um, one last thing from our folks at CTJC. If you would like to support their work, of course, you can donate to the center overall, but especially an opportunity to direct some resources is the Survivor Repair Fund. Uh, it's fully sustained by the community and 100% of donations go directly to survivors. The info for that is on their website, chicagotorturejustice.org slash repair fund. Also, if you want to hear more conversations happening out of the CTJC space, in summer 2021, Ergo republished a series of online events that they did called Where We're Going, We Need Each Other. We'll put the link to that in the show notes. It's also just in the Ergo feed. If you scroll back, not as far as we told you to scroll Just back. Just go listen to Ergo as well. Is what we're happening. saying. This whole has been a, this has all been a ruse for our shameless plug. Uh, that's AIRGO, wherever you get your podcasts. We're at Ergo Radio. What a joy it's been hanging out with y'all this season and making this great show. Hopefully many more to come. And I think that's it. See you next year, y'all. Much love to the people. Peace.